Digital Gonzo, episode 96, dated Thursday the 23rd of August 2012, The Legend of Ung. Sorry. <laughs> Don't do that. The Legend of Ang, book one, Water. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. My grandmother used to tell me stories about the old days, a time of peace when the Avatar kept balance between the Water Tribes, Earth Kingdom, Fire Nation, and Air Nomads. But that all changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar mastered all four elements. Only he could stop the ruthless firebenders. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years have passed, and the Fire Nation is nearing victory in the war. Two years ago, my father and the men of my tribe journeyed to the Earth Kingdom to help fight against the Fire Nation, leaving me and my brother to look after our tribe. Some people believe that the Avatar was never reborn into the Air Nomads and that the cycle is broken, but I haven't lost hope. I still believe that somehow, the Avatar will return to save the world. This is the second of five Avatar shows detailing the various series. It has spoilers for season one, but in the grand scheme of things, if you're still not convinced, this may help. And knowing what happens may in fact spur you on, whereas not knowing would hold you back. Depends what kind of person you are, but I ask you to listen only under that proviso. Avatar is the brainchild of Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konichko, who previously worked on shows like King of the Hill and Invader Zim. Their pitch to Nickelodeon was nerve-wracking, to say the least. They had to convince a studio that wanted to capitalize at the time on the new Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter film series that their epic, based on Eastern cultures and mythology, would fly with kids aged 6 to 11. A lot of what helped them was the sheer spectacle of bending, a way of translating both extremely visual physical magic and martial arts action into a cartoon without full contact violence. Their test screenings came off really well and they were greenlit, paving the way for this somewhat awkward but lovable first season. Their initial intention was to collaborate with one of the big Japanese studios like Gainax, who were behind Neon Genesis Evangelion. In the end, after nobody called them back, they went to Korea and set up a new and very flexible system with their animators to both give the writers and artists a chance to get vital input into what was being produced. It was common practice for Brian to act out in exaggerated fashion how he wanted the characters to perform, video it and send it on to the studio. There is a very real sense of acerbic comic timing throughout that appears to be a direct result of that. The show's creators based each bending style on an existing martial art, leading to clear visual and physical differences in the techniques used by waterbenders, tai chi, earthbenders, hungar, firebenders, northern Shaolin, and airbenders, bagua. Martial art sequences were consistently brought to their consultants for both authenticity of movement and to maintain an energy to the action. Sifu Kisu of the Harmonious Fist Chinese Athletic Association was their go-to guy, with a Chugar praying mantis expert, Manuel Rodriguez, there to instruct on how 
Toph Bei Fong should fight. She has a very singular fighting style. So in this first season, Aang is found in the iceberg by Katara and Sokka. Then they journey from the south to the north pole of the Four Nations, making multiple stops along the way to get into various adventures and learn some history. They are pursued by angry, exiled Prince Zuko and his amiable uncle. Emotional touch points include Aang becoming stricken with guilt over running away when he did, finding out a little about Roku and Kiyoshi, his last two incarnations. The season culminates in a siege upon the great ice city in the frozen north by a giant fleet of Fire Nation warships. I think, by and large, book one is the weakest of all the series, and I'm including Legend of Korra in that simply because it feels like the creators behind this are still kind of feeling their way mm. as to what kind of show this is going to be. And they're slightly confused about who their audience is. Sometimes they think, oh, this is for kids, and then sometimes uh, it's targeted at adults. What's great about the later series is that they find that balance where it's appealing to everyone. See, I felt like that was, that was carefully controlled, and they were like, right, let's just make sure that Nickelodeon know that we are definitely going for the 6 to 11 bracket, and then we'll try and slip in more and more mature themes as we go. But it's more elegant, do you know what I mean? It's more elegant. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's handled better later on when, it's, when all the numbers are in and Nickelodeon know that they're doing good things and that they're, they're extremely popular. At the beginning, they had to be a bit tentative yeah. in case they got... Because after, I think, 13 episodes, The Storm was the one where they might have got cancelled because it was like halfway through the season and it's like, can we, do we continue? Are the numbers working? So that is the point when it suddenly starts getting good because when they come back, they're like, right, okay, we're going to carry on with this and they get more confidence. That said, a lot of the seeds of what makes this show absolutely fantastic are sown here, specifically uh, the dialogue is mm. great. Sokka, uh, Katara, Ang are immediately relatable. Maybe not as complex as they become later, but definitely likable, great characters. You do get a great sense of the world. And that, I feel like that's what season one's role is. It's very much introducing you to the world. Here are the Earthbenders, here are the Firebenders, here's a bit of background on the world and stuff like that. Whereas later on, uh, in season two and season three, they really get into the meat of the narrative. I think you're right about it having that easing you in feel to it. But I have to admit, I thought that was a strength rather than a weakness. It does hold you by the hand a little bit sometimes, but it's never unnecessarily exposition-filled. They have enough scenes that kind of... They weave in what you can see going on around you or around, you know, around the characters um, to, to give you an idea and a sense of what the world feels like. And it's interesting that you made the comparison between that and how Korra starts, because I have to admit it took me a lot longer to warm to Korra because it was so bang, now you're in, here's this incredibly in-depth political situation that everybody's having to deal with. And I, I was sat there thinking, well, I, I could really have done with a little bit more introduction and a little bit slower easing into to how the story's going to play out. 
Also, Korra does have a, a different pace to the rest of them. Because they've only got 12 episodes, there is a, a, a real momentum to it, but there are some times when I think, there should really have been one show where they just kicked back and hung out, and there was no major danger, and it was just a character-building exercise. So just one or two extra ones of them would probably have benefited it. I expect that was a, a result of them thinking that it was just going to be a 12-part miniseries, begin mm-hmm. and end. And now that they realize that this is going to be going on for a while, I expect that's going to start showing up more. Of course, and I'm really looking forward to those. Oh, yes. Uh, there's, there is a feeling about this first season of this Ang series that it feels a little sitcom-ish almost in a way where a lot of episodes will start that's our soccer <laughs> yeah exactly but like a lot of episodes will start hello soccer it's sort of a directionless in a way like a lot of episodes will start with the trio fly in on appa to some place that they're kind of going or they'll stop and visit things will happen they'll have a bit of an adventure zuko will probably catch up to them and try to catch them but they'll narrowly get away and then at the end of the episode they will fly away on appa onto their next adventure and it all feels very at the end of the episode everything's wrapped up nicely and you may know a little bit more about the world, which is good, and you and you enjoyed it, but it doesn't feel like there's a single thing leading everything along. Whereas in later seasons, it's not nearly so neatly wrapped up at the end. At the end mm. of the episode, a character may be missing or have been kidnapped, or they may have learned something horrible about what is coming up in the future that they're going to have to deal with. Or, or something horrible about one of their pasts, and you suddenly start feeling for yeah, the it, character like you never have before. Yeah, it, de- it like leaves you fe- wondering what is going to happen. There's not with like cheap cliffhangers or anything, but it just really propels you through the in, the entire body of work. Whereas a lot of these feel a little bit slower paced and kind of all right, we're just getting into the world a bit. It's more so, modular as well. They don't necessarily lead on to each other quite so much. And that's true. Later on, they all become parts of a whole. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend cutting out any episodes in your viewing of this at all because nah. every bit of because each one gives you some information about the world or introduces a character that'll be important later. But they don't propel you through the season nearly as well as episodes will in the future. So I I think that's the main reason a lot of people kind of lose interest early on, because it feels maybe a little kiddie compared to what it will later, and because it doesn't have that just propulsion through. Imagine skipping The King of Omashu the first time you watch it, and then be like, who is this guy? Later on. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> or Jet as well. Um, yeah. It only has a one-off episode in season one, but becomes a, an emotional touchstone in season two. With season one, it's very much a case of they know where they're going. It's a case of how do they portray this to the viewer without going too far in one direction. There is a in season one, obviously, all the way through. There is the underlying tone that Ang's trying to escape from. He is the Avatar. He doesn't quite want to own up to it so he sidetracks himself by riding penguins and going to go and swim with elephant koi and things like that which is all Mm. fun and kind of makes it all a bit lighter but all the way through you know there's this underlying tone that there's it's going to be serious he's got to have to accept it at some point that's one thing that i would say that's really positive about season one seeing how immature and childlike ang is uh, in this season gives a lot of weight to how the character evolves later on. Going back and watching the, uh, these episodes, I've because I'm seeing them through the eyes of somebody who's watched the entire work, yeah. these episodes do have more weight because I've seen the entire thing. And mm. you feel like these characters have really evolved and changed in a very organic way uh, along their journey. 
I said the same thing about watching Young Justice last night. It's, it kind of took a long time to start up, but then once I'd seen some of the more emotional character-based episodes near the end of the series, going back and watching the earlier ones, they now have that much more meaning. Because you have to invest, and you can't immediately invest in characters. Yeah. It doesn't really work the other way around. It, it's, it's, it's rare for a TV show to make you care about a character that quickly, that much. You kind of have to spend some time with them. Um, so, yeah, do, do you guys just want to go through some uh, highlights of the series? I've got a whole list of the ep- episodes in front of me. Okay, yeah. The uh, Boy and the Iceberg. Little aspects of this. It's not the the whole getting the story off it, on its feet. It's, 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 it's all kind of part of the course and you're watching it play out. But just little moments, like when Sokka keeps poking Aang with his spear <laughs> well, when he's out of the thing, just un- in an untrustworthy way. And he goes, he's a, he's a Fire Nation spy, which is ridiculous when you think about it. And then Katara says, yeah, you can tell he's a Fire Nation guy. Look at that evil look in his eye. And he looks at the camera, breaks through the fourth wall and goes, <laughs> with his eyebrow. <laughs> Love that moment. We take it for granted, but when Ab- uh, Appa first starts flying, because he's, he's only ever been sort of sloping along on the sea at that point, but when Katara and Sokka get him flying to go and rescue Aang, it's a big moment. And I love seeing that. And seeing uh, Sokka kind of get really excited, yeah. like, oh my god, we're fly- Oh, wait a minute, I forgot the character that um, I present to people. I'm very cynical. <laughs> and then suddenly adjusts himself. <laughs> It's, it's really great. Despite the fact that it's probably one of the, the most kiddie bits in the entire thing, it's one of my most oft-quoted lines to uh, Lyra, is just saying, I need to ask you something. What? Please, come closer. What is it? Will you go penguin sledding with me? <laughs> just such a, what? I'm a fully grown adult watching this. Now, I don't have any shame in, in watching that. I, as far as I'm concerned, being able to enjoy the things my daughter is enjoying is a huge bonus for me. And Lyra loves this show like no other. I've got to say, Josh, thank you so much. She knows this show better than M. Night Shyamalan, clearly. <laughs> we were asking her advice while we were watching the movie, and we went, right, why is soccer wrong? He's not funny. Yep. <laughs> and she was, she was getting the character basics down in a way that clearly someone who understands the show can. But even with the understanding and interpretation of a three-year-old could get it better than that film. She's well, four next why, week, to be four fair. Four next week. Okay, four-year-old. Um, that's why children's entertainment shouldn't be patronising. Um, yeah, Pixar are a great example because... Yeah. They make entertainment that is totally acceptable for kids to watch, but doesn't patronise them, and an adult could watch it. And it has great characters and great storylines. If you get kids to watch that stuff at an early age, of course they're going to have discerning taste later Mm. on in life. Um, The way I like to describe it is the difference between making something for kids and making something for a family. Yeah, definitely. A good writer will know that the parents are watching alongside the kid. Well, they definitely should be. 
Yeah. You should never feel, I can't watch this, this is too kiddie, and walk away leaving your kid there, because you're just leaving them with something inane. I always wince a little bit when a reviewer says of a bad film, well, it works okay as a kid's film, I guess. No it, does, said, no, it doesn't. Like the 6% <laughs> exactly. of critics who said that The Last Airbender was okay all said, I don't know, it's okay as a kid's film. How much do you hate kids if you think that that is the case? How <laughs> yeah. little opinion do you have of these guys? That it is definitely no excuse whatsoever. I, I'm willing to agree that there can be something that's not that great and something that kids wouldn't enjoy that kids would. There's totally room for that. But just because something is awful doesn't mean that it is <laughs> that it is awful and not like too maturely rated doesn't like full of mature content doesn't relegate it to being a kids film some things are just bad for everyone yeah. perfect example bambi a lot of adults love it i find it really difficult and boring and hard to watch and it's just like oh come on stupid cutesy bunnies and skunks and but lyra <laughs> was watching enraptured, wasn't she, Sharon? She had her little hands up to her face and was watching Thumper going, If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. Now, I don't mind leaving Lyra in front of that because it's not inane, but I hate watching that film. (laughs) Anyway. um, Okay, The the Avatar Returns, episode one, you know, episode two. Effectively, the first one's a two-parter, and this is where Aang is now at Zuko's mercy. Just talking about Zuko early on, um, my first impression of Zuko is that I didn't like him at all. He's yeah. a um, complete tool. Yeah. Um, which, says a, which says a lot that by the end of season three, he's... <laughs> I'm not going to talk about spoilers. <laughs> I'm just going to say that by the end of season three, he was in my top five favourite characters. Okay, that's uh, fine. So just to say to people who are watching this show please do not be put off by your first impression of Zuko he gets a lot of development later on. He might be my favourite character because he has the biggest clearest arc. Yeah. I'll even say that by the end of this book you're, you like him more simply by what you learn about him the Southern Air Temple's the next one. Uh, again, I'm going to keep picking on the little daft funny moments, but the bit where Ang shows the kids in the flashback how to make an air scooter and then scoots around the place, I, I know it's immature, but I love that little sort of tappy funny bit of music. One great moment for me in that episode where uh, Katara is uh, looking to Sokka to uh, reinforce something she just said. Do you think we'll really find airbenders? You want me to be like you or totally honest? Are you saying I'm a liar? I'm saying you're an optimist. Same thing, basically. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great moment um, and a sign of things to come in terms of comedy. I do also like Aang's uh, reaction to uh, realising that his his friend, uh, well, all the monks, but specifically his friend Monk Gyatso, have been slaughtered by firebenders 100 years ago and he wasn't there to sort it out. Not that he could really have done much anyway in his untrained state. Th- that's the first time when you realise, oh, oh, actually, this this might get pretty his emotional. This series shattered at that point. Yeah, like he's always had that thing in the back of his mind. Maybe, maybe they're still survived or something. But that illusion is shattered once he sees that. Yeah. And, it's the, and it's the first glimpse that this little kind of carefree kind of kids show happy little kid is got has got some stuff underneath. Mm. Uh, much like that Ang himself has been you know he's been putting up a great front for a couple of episodes so far but uh, at this point we realise that he's got some things he's keeping to himself the Warriors of Kyoshi 
I love the way that Suki and her warriors are portrayed as this kind of very disciplined, very proud, very strong characters. But the, the bit where she says, but I'm also a girl at the end and, and gives Sokka that little kiss. It's A, it was good enough to get her character back and to actually make her kind of an important one for the Avatar story. Mike and Brian are self-confessed creators of good female characters. And Suki and uh, indeed Kyoshi herself is a good example of this. As Dan Floyd and James Portnow have said in the past, the key to a strongly characterised female is how much or how little she accepts her role in the society surrounding her and which aspects she allows to define herself. This works with male characters too, but there is often a completely different set of expectations there. How a woman dresses, what job they take, their relationship with their parents and their parents' societal views can all be major clues as to what sort of person they are, and this applies to pretty much every female character in Avatar. It's especially important to pay close attention in avenues of entertainment predominantly written by males, as it's very easy to make assumptions of your gender opposite. Of the 11 credited writers on the show, only two of them were women. So the persistent quality of writing on the female perspectives is a credit to the entire team. Kyoshi's one of my favourite episodes, The Warriors of Kyoshi, mm. in season one. It was actually the first one that wasn't written by either the two, either it was written by uh, Nick Malice. Mm-hmm. So it's a big episode for soccer for me, as his all jokey nature, he actually swallows his pride and yeah. apologises to Suki so about his sexist attitude and wants to train with her, and it's the first time he really gets sort of a love interest things like that and even towards the end of the episode you get a sense of how dangerous the fire nation are with the city burning mm. and ang leaving you like ang no come back save them and then he jumps in the water and sprays the water over so it's kind of okay that he's going now he's kind of saved the village a bit but uh yeah um, quite kicks off there for me they write strong female characters but they are female they're not just males who happen to yeah, e- even, be female. Even Toth, who is very much a tomboy, still he, has yeah. a femininity to her, and, uh, and much of her personality is rejecting her place in society. This show, 60-odd percent of its audience are female in, in terms of the fan base. Much and, like Firefly. Yeah, and I'm just thinking... Well, duh, if you write great female characters in an action adventure They will come. They will come. Mm-hmm. You don't have to... It seems so weird to me that like execs just think, oh, well, it's an action thing, so boys are going to watch it. Oh, well, yeah. do, you, do you know about the toys? They didn't make a Katara figure in the only wave of Avatar figures. They didn't what? make a single female. They made uh, Roku. They made Boomy. <laughs> Apparently, according to the uh, the art book, they kept badgering Mike and Brian. This Ong in the spirit world is a simple blue repaint. So who does he fight when he's in the spirit world? Well, um, no one. He, he doesn't have a body. How about this Zuko guy? No, Zuko can't do that. You have to understand, it's a spiritual... Could Ong wear fire armor? No, that would burn him. Could Ong perhaps wear air armor? That doesn't even make sense. We've got this mock-up for an air glider rocket launcher thing. That's not something Ang would use. You have to understand, we're talking mostly pre-industrialization tech here. The Sokermobile. Are you even listening to me? How about this Raku versus King Boomer volcano playset? That could never happen. Zuko's firebase. He lives on a ship. This one actually lights on fire. Isn't that dangerous for... Children? Unstaff has attachable blades. Oh dear god. And he comes with a robotic monkey companion. 
Actually, that's a funny story. Originally, Aang was going to be... It transforms into a space jet. Never mind. Well, son, we're not getting anywhere here, so what ideas do you have? Actually, I haven't seen a Katara figure in here. Action wondering... figures based on girls within toy lines mind-sharing with pre-tween male demographics are for sissies. Of course they are. According to our extensive focus groups. Even making a figure would represent a 12% loss for us in this market share. Mm-hmm. There's one more thing we want to suggest to you. Yeah, go ahead. My little avatar. It's our new line of girls' toys. Oh, sweet lord. They can brush and style Zatanna's hair and visit Snooky's pink salon. Never have children. I wasn't planning on it. Try to force and pigeonhole this license into what they understand sells figures. That's loathsome point of view. And they, they, they put out a press release of, like, there's been such an interest in the Katara character, and she's definitely, you know, she's blossomed in the show into actually someone quite important. You know what? I can't swear on this show, but the worst words in the world directed at that statement. How dare you suggest that this was anything other than you marketing speak going, Little boys don't like playing with figures of girls. My Tila figure says hello. My Chitara figure says hello. My April O'Neil figure says hello. And and yes, my McFarlane Sarah Connor figure most definitely says hello. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa, for goodness sake. That was Bandai, by the way. Yeah, yeah that's Bandai. And back to the, um, the women of the show. Yeah, go for it, sorry. There's a, there's a bit in the women of the show where um, I was watching a documentary that some girl who actually saw the movie was dressed as a Goshi warrior and was undressing because she, the Goshi warriors weren't in the movie. And not in a I good way. Either. Yeah, no. <laughs> her costume off in disgust. The Warriors of Kiyoshi also features a very silly fellow who foams at the mouth and screams when the Avatar approaches. <laughs> clear nod to hysterical Beatlemania, which somewhat distracted from the actual talents of the artists, and more recently Bieber Fever, which does not. Another daft little comedy moment, which I'm going to keep pointing out, um, when Sokka is trying his best to do the Kiyoshi fighting forms, <laughs> and does that little cutter, but, and it plays like a little twangy tune as he's doing it, which gets more and more gradually out of tune as he does, does the moves wrong. It's a great little representation of showing that Sokka, for all of his bluster, isn't actually that skilled a warrior. Not yet, anyway. He doesn't have the self-control, but yeah, he, he definitely has potential. It's kind of the first step of his growth, though. Like, he's not very good now, but he, toward the end of this little training sequence, has actually shown, like, he learned a few things from these warriors. But as with certain other characters, the key to his growth lies in humility. Yes. yes. And he is definitely humbled in this episode. The King of Omashu. Now, this is one of the ones I put on my list of must-watch, even though it doesn't immediately seem massively important. Um, we could talk about the episode and talk about all the spoilers in it because it's, you know, at this point, folks, if you're listening, it's spoilers ahoy. I love the character of Boomy. Yeah. I find him hilarious. <laughs> you're I didn't a I was like, what are they doing with this? But now that I've, I've seen it, I'm like, every stupid thing this guy comes up with is brilliant. <laughs> oh, Kangaroo Island, eh? I hear that place is really hopping. 
<laughs> what? It was pretty funny. It's not so much the mad genius of King Boomy, but the awkward reactions of everyone around him forced to choose their reaction carefully, and the supreme confidence of self that 112 years have bestowed upon him. He's not dissimilar, in fact, to the cackling goblin that Yoda first masquerades as in The Empire Strikes Back, and of course he's masking a deeper wisdom. Boomy represents the comforting idea to all of us that we can grow old, lose our marbles, but still keep the important things together. This is the reason why Ang is so feels comfortable going to other nations, because he had these sort of friends in yeah. all these nations, and they weren't just your run-the-mill normal kids, they were these over-the-top crazy mad genius sort of people. Mm. But he had Fire Nation friends, he had Earth yep. Nation friends, he, he was much like Iroh, he appreciated all cultures, as an Avatar should. The show also stands as your first introduction to what real earth bending actually looks like which is a very impressive introduction I would yeah. say also it's a mystery show it's one of the first ones where there's a, a, a puzzle to be solved yeah it's it's when you look back on it you're like well obviously it's him it's one of the first ones where Ang is given a test a literal test daddy wants a kiss from Flapsy I love the little throwaway exchange line when they're trying to come up with Boomy's name and maybe it's some kind of riddle I got it yeah he's an earthbender right Rocky you know, because of all the rocks. We're going to keep trying, but that is a good backup. Send them to the bad room or the good room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and of course, the other running gag in this that not only makes its way entirely through the Avatar series, but into Korra. Oh, cabbages! Oh, cabbages! Cabbage corp. The other day... In, in Tesco's, Lyra stood in front of the lettuces and went, Oh no, my cabbages! Now that should at least show you the way that this is sunk into her. Yeah, there's a guy, uh, for outsiders who are like, What is that about? There's a guy who is trying to sell cabbages throughout the series and uh, his cabbage cart gets destroyed in various um, unlucky ways. And that's based on a recurring gag in Cowboy Bebop where the same old guys would turn up in every uh, planet that they visited. No, my cabbages! My cabbages! No, my cabbages! My cabbages! Oh, forget it! Okay, uh, Imprisoned is the next one. Haru, the uh, Earthbender, and with the wonderful George Takai. Yeah. There is one bit in the film which drove you nuts, isn't it, Sharon? It actually relates to Imprisoned. The yes! Imprisoned. Yes, of course! Um, they, when they get to the, the village um, that's supposed to be sort of the analogue of, of this episode... The less expensive... Um, yeah, and then the, that whole thing about Haru being really cagey about his earthbending and that, that, the brilliant fact that it's an essential part of who he is and he's being forced to conceal it because he's terrified of, of what mm. it will mean um, gets translated to, some kids were throwing some stones at us. It really it hurt. Really yeah, they go to the village and obviously in the, in the episode, Kitara makes this amazing speech to try and inspire them to, to use what, skills they have to, to stand up to the Fire Nation. And in the film, Aang does it. He just takes away that power that I Katara mean, had. Even worse, in the film, they're just still on the Earth. There's no reason why they couldn't. Yeah. They just didn't. Yeah. And Earthbenders are, are so powerful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and 
seeing as the, the firebenders in the film can only firebend <laughs> like bonfires and you know stuff Candles. like that. Just and surround the braziers in huge amounts of rock. They can't get at it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a reason why this war with the Earth Nation has been going on for so long. It's because the Earth Nation are not, you know, a flimsy group of people. These are powerful, strong people. You can't put all of them in a metal room. Yeah. Yeah. Or wooden room, as it turns out later. In. What's even better? That Lima's airbending. No. <laughs> I'll show you earthbending style. <laughs> See, all of this stuff we're talking about are the funny bits. You can't not include the humour in the film. That makes no sense. Right, the next one is the spirit world. That's the one with the giant panda. I think that that episode's great just to introduce the spirit world mm. um, having that village be in danger by this creature but also have it be an episode where Ang discovers that side of him as well mm. Ang is quite a spiritual person anyway so he takes to it quite easily I would say and um, naturally. naturally yeah without a you know a full understanding of how it all works because he kind of accidentally gets into the spirit world yeah. and accidentally gets back again but I think it's also great because you get to see Ang take the more pacifistic kind of approach to the situation. Because you see this monster and he's just tearing up the place. And your immediate reaction is, okay, we're just going to defeat this evil creature. But no, Ang sees a different side of it and tries to understand why this creature is acting the way it is. Mm. And the um, end of that episode is great because it's about trying to find balance and which is ultimately what the show's all about and trying to settle this situation peacefully in a way that both parties are satisfied rather than destroy the evil monster this was heavily uh, influenced by princess monarchy oh, i was just about to say I think yeah it's absolutely in this one. ties in very much with the philosophy of spirits they're not malicious they just have a nature about them. Also emphasises the idea that bending is yeah. a natural thing and it's not in and of Magic. itself good or evil. And, mm. you know, even the, the different elements, the Fire Nation may be quite heavily weighted towards people who are using their bending abilities for ill, but that doesn't make them evil and it certainly doesn't make bending in its, fire bending in itself evil. It's just the way it's being used. Yeah. Um, there's... Uh, two bits spring to mind in the film again um, one of the first things in this ridiculous opening monologue crawl plus voiceover uh, Katara tells us that uh, the Avatar was the only person who could commune with the spirit world communicate with it which is rubbish no. we know this to be untrue the guru what about all those sages there's a whole bunch of spiritual people in the world Iroh can sort of see them yeah it's that that was just absolute codswallop. Speaking of uh, Iroh, we do get to see a bit. We get to learn a bit more about him in this one. Oh yeah, he, yeah. he gets uh, captured and taken. Oh away, yes, he's been taken away. <laughs> For one, we learned that he's actually a lot more wily and clever and potentially powerful than we've probably seen up until this point. Mm. But we also learn a bit about his history. It's, oh, this guy was like a actually was a serious great general, and we see him being, even though he's prisoner of these guys, quite respectful of them at the same time. Yeah, you get you get a much better grasp of who his character is in this episode. 
Oh, and the other thing is that in the movie, for no real reason, Ung talks to Roku's dragon over and over again. Yeah. It's never made clear who this dragon is, why the dragon's significant, and Roku's dragon doesn't even talk. And Roku isn't in the film, and that's confusing as all hell for everyone involved. He's mentioned, but he doesn't appear. Mm. And again, we said to Lyra, who does that dragon belong to? And she said... Roku. I'm I'm fine with him talking with with dragons, but it was to no end in this in the film. Well, I I just like the idea of the previous avatar helping to nurture the abilities of the next. It, it was it, it was just such a great idea to me that mm. it's like p- passing the torch, if you know what I mean. It's um, uh, passing on those skills and that knowledge to the next. It was clever. It was a yep. good way of handling things. Because they portray that you ha- they have the closest link to the previous Avatar before them. Mm. Which is, I mean, it's, the interesting thing is that rather than just a straightforward reincarnation thing, it's not just one person's soul constantly reincarnated through these various bodies. Each different soul in each different body plays host to the Avatar force. And it's that force that binds them all together and gives them that link and heritage all the way back. And that stores the collective memories. Which is how each avatar can be different rather than just the same soul trapped in a different body. Next episode is The Winter Solstice Part 2, where again he, he tries to go to talk to Roku. That neat bit of um, tricking of the sages is probably my, my favourite moment in it. That the whole soccer's plan didn't work, but it looked like it worked. Yeah, I like uh, I like that this episode also introduces our main driving, like what our what the ultimate goal is. What yeah, it introduces the this comet is coming. It creates urgency in a way which the early it's like a half dozen shows before this have not necessarily had. So it's just sure, kind of been yeah. following these kids on their adventures, going around. Now we see that. There's a this time thi- scale. This thing is coming, and if they do not, if they are not prepared to for this fight by that time, then it just significantly raises the stakes. Doom. Yeah. Oh, uh, in the film, did you notice that it was Susan's comment was coming in three years? Nice way of covering their backs, <laughs> just in case the development time on the next two films was a lot longer. They should have said thirty years. <laughs> okay, our next one's the waterbending scroll. That's when they meet the pirates. And I think one of my favorite bits in this is Ang's bartering. What say ye to two copper pieces? And no one else, the pirates don't talk like pirates. It's no, only yeah. Ang who talks like a, a classic pirate in that. There's quite an interesting ethical scenario going through this uh, series because they're not just cut and dried boy scouts the whole time it's not like Katara you shouldn't have stolen that scroll stealing is wrong and then returning it and everything's hunky-dory there also isn't a case of like when Aang lies in the great divide they're not like I can't believe you did that go back and tell them the truth it's you know it's a case of okay maybe some unethical things actually have good ends one thing I like about the shades of grey I like about the Great Divide is Anglo's a crucial lesson. Some part, sometimes people are just assholes. The next one is Jet, and Jet is a character inspired by Spike Spiegel from one of my favourite animes, Cowboy Bebop. At least in terms of his look and his laconic charm. 
And he's a very manipulative character. I was, it was, we were discussing this earlier when we watched the uh, episode, Sharon. He's, he's very good at getting people to do what he wants them to do and making them want to do it. He is very similar to Zuko. Yeah. And in terms of how the character develops, he's almost a microcosm of uh, Zuko's arc. It's, uh, it's really yeah. interesting. Good ideals turned... Just twisted. Yeah. Where the ends don't justify the means. I love the little bit of dialogue they have when we're first meeting Jet and his crew with the, uh, hey Jet, we found these barrels of blasting jelly. It's like, hey, good find. Hey, we also found these jelly candies. Also good. Let's not get those mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> the reference when he shows her his treetop house is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Sort of holding on to her and going, this is my treetop house. Are you not amazed? <laughs> and she is in this case I made him this hat there are m- multiple key characters in this that come back later on in uh, in the series it's, it's, a ni- it's get nice to get the call back on them and in fact they do this quite a lot that you know characters that people liked in the uh, this first series get callbacks and get brought back in later on it's, it's a great way of uh, it's kind of like a long one in comic series like Preacher or something I kind of never thought I'd compare Avatar to Preacher but they, they go hey remember this guy we brought him back and he actually has to this end something of an arc it's as a just, result it's just like Josh says once you've seen the whole series things come into light mm. when you watch it from the start again yeah oh another really neat bit about this is the uh, the floating doll thing I was like I can't believe they went that far floating doll like you know this is what they show whenever there's a burned out village there's always a doll on the ground or like every film there'll be a burned doll on the ground just so kids died in this one but then they flip that by having the little girl pick it back up and go Mrs. Pretty it was a great way to display why soccer being practical mm. helps them. You can't always trust everybody you meet. Yeah, it's good seeing his cynicism be right, like like the broken clock being right twice a day. Like sometimes Sokka is right, and you so you don't just dismiss everything he says. Not only right, but downright useful. Um, next one is the Great Divide, which I think Josh you specifically dismissed when I, you were saying you don't have to watch all of these ones again. I was like, dude, I love the Great Divide. Because this is the one, it's, it's very Marmite. Some people love it, some people hate it. Really? What's to hate? The problem is, nothing really feels like happens to some people. Uh, my, my, my problem is it, uh, with it is that these two tribes, I hate both of them. I don't yes. like either of them. <laughs> yeah. And I just want Ang, Sokka, and Katara to fly off. On Appa and leave these arseholes. Oh, I can't say that. Um, That's just what a filthy Zhang would say. <laughs> they are basically elves versus dwarves as well. Yeah. Yeah. Look, for me, the reason I like it, at least let me say this, it's Ang doing Commander Shepard stuff. Absolutely. Having to mitigate disputes which you just want to slap both parties and go, seriously, I'm only doing this for EXP. The reason why I like is literally because he learns that sometimes people you just can't deal with. Mm. It's best to lie, lie to them, <laughs> lie get out of the way, and be on your merry way. <laughs> your traditions have no meaning anymore. Go away. <laughs> I just reduced a hundred years of feud into a children's play. I love that. <laughs> Redemption! Great. It's also the point where he comes in and just finally starts accepting I'm going to have to be the Avatar I don't really want to mm. deal with this but I'm the Avatar I've got to deal with this I can't walk away 
Uh, even though it's the most pathetic thing in the world, it's a really stupid feud. Ang wants to sort it, and I'm glad he's finally stepping up. And they do look to him at that point, and they aren't just, you know, oh, what's this kid going to say? Yeah. It is a little stage in his arc that he's just forcing himself to stick with and deal with this feud. And he does see it through and stick it out and make it work. I love the different little animation styles they create for the two opposing mm. sides of the story. Yes. That's a fun little uh, visual treat. The next one's The Storm. This is the one where we find out the circumstances which led Aang to fly away. Now, in the film, they say something along the lines of, they told me that I could never grow up and get married and have a wife. And it's like, how did you interpret that? <laughs> how did you interpret that weird George Lucas, like, creepy monk-like thing out of this particular episode? They never told Aang that. Avatar Roku was married. Many of the previous Avatars are married. That is not a condition of being the Avatar. What the hell are you talking about? Especially, oh no, I'm not going to say that. Edit what I was about to say. Yeah, I get to feel that. I know what you're going to talk about. Yeah, unfortunately, you were new for that, yes. I was just like him. Spoilers. Zuko's uh, backstory is explained yeah. here as well. Ah, yes. Um, and this is when you're starting to sympathise with him a little bit more than you previously were because you're understanding where that anger and frustration is coming from mm. and the way um, he was treated by his father just being punished over the most trivial of things just because he had an opinion on something based uh, on ethics I might add yeah that because he was trying to be his own person with his own thoughts on things, he was severely burnt um, <laughs> yeah. by his in the father, face by his and father. disgraced. Yeah, and just cast out by his father and banished from his nation. And he blames himself. He feels like this is his fault that he has to regain his honor. You, you immediately start thinking, Zuko, what are you thinking? And and this kind of... Who uh, are you and what do you want? Yeah, exactly. And this is something that progresses... Uh, one of the major things that progresses through the next two seasons. Zuko becoming his own man. Mm. This, this episode also has some really nice touches in it that show how far ahead they'd already been thinking and designing. There's little moments like Iroh bends lightning and we yeah. see... Azula in the back, in the crowd scenes in mm. the background. It's the first time we see Azula actually, yeah, and her was... glee at, at Zuko being maimed is appalling. There's a lot of elements there where they knew exactly what they were going to do with it later, yeah. that they've worked into an early season. It's I just love seeing little touches like that that tie it all together, and I also love the little fisherman's line of. I'm too young to die. No, not, but I still don't wanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. And the uh, it was like, we're going to go save your husband. Me too. I'm staying here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next one is the Blue Spirit, which is probably one of the first ones where you're like, okay, like, this is interesting. One of the things I loved is it, did, it showed how... 
a lot of the time you just see Zuko as this crazy fire, fire and bending prince who has a bad past. You get to see how efficient he is even without his bedding. He goes off by himself, he infiltrates a Fire Nation prison mm. and breaks Ang out without even giving a hint that he can bend. Um, also the uh, the coldness of Admiral Zhao when he's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. That'll just start the cycle all over again. You'll just be reborn as a, it would be a, a waterbender. But I'm going to keep you alive, but barely. Right, this is what Ang has to look forward to. It's not being hunted down and killed. It's being hunted down and imprisoned and kept just barely alive for as long as they possibly do it. Maybe a hundred years. That's pretty grim. It's a fate worse than death. There's a really neat bit uh, at the end when Zuko, who Ang has decided to save the first of several times, uh, despite the fact that he could just leave him there, says to him as he's waking up, you know, in, in different circumstances, I had friends who were firebenders. You and I could have been friends. And Zuko doesn't respond. He just goes, and, and attacks him again. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. Another touch I really like in this episode is that Katara and Sokka are both ill, uh, and it's clearly a way oh, I of that, yeah. it, this is clearly a way of just getting them out of this story arc because they want to focus on Zuko and Aang. But still, it's really funny, yeah. uh, especially when Sokka, <laughs> well, well. Says, Sokka says, "Take that, you rock!" When he thinks he's an <laughs> earth no, you yeah. know what I love he, most about Appa? He just has the humor. Classic Appa. I also love the whole sequence where they're trying to tell Momo to get them water and he just keeps bringing back everything under the sun except for what they want. I don't get why Katara doesn't mind how Momo would drink water. She just goes... <laughs> it's, just, it's, it, it's a really great way of... Even Lyra got what was going on and that Momo couldn't possibly understand her. Uh, but also the mad old woman. Yeah. I just love how you, you're insane, right? That's right. That's right. And so, the cat she's got is it like is it a Studio Ghibli cat? I can't place it, but it might be in uh, Howl's Moving Castle, or it might be in My Neighbor Totoro, or it might be in um, At Returns. Okay, Returns. What's the other one I was watching? Sharon, you you mentioned a cat. Um. The cat. Oh, I, I just, uh, it was an idle wondering whether it was the same um, long haired white cat that's in uh, Kiki's delivery service. Oh, yeah, that one has a white cat too. So, and yeah, the whole frozen frogs thing and having Sokka sucking on a frozen frog at the end, <laughs> and that being the punchline to this show. And Ang's exclamation in the middle of a, like, a pitched chase scene. Wait! My friend needs to suck on those frogs! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and we also get these really awesome archers who never turn up again, but, but are really cool and accomplished archers. Oh, yeah. They say oh, the Avatar can make hurricanes and run faster than the wind. It's like, oh, that's just Fire Lord propaganda. And then he comes zooming past, and they sound the horn. It's not just zooming past. He goes round and round <laughs> the side of a canyon, then zooms past, leaving them choking in dust. And then just as he goes past, I, I went, I made this noise, and then there's a little sound effect of it it's not actually the road runner going beep beep but it's a <laughs> it goes, eh, eh. and it's like oh my god they've just been made wily coyote the fortune tellers the next one and we get the great jesse flowers doing her first voice for uh, avatar as um is it meng i think so yes yeah 
the girl who has the hots for Aang. And there's this kind of... When she realises that he isn't going to requite her love, she just sort of does this slump, and her, like, gappy teeth go, oh. And she then grabs her unmanageable hair and pulls it down and goes, yeah, Katara doesn't have this hair. At that point, I really I feel for Meng, specifically because Jessie Flowers is incredibly charming from the very word go in this. She plays Toph later on. You'll learn to love her. Meng's infatuation with Aang is one of the many moments, especially in this first series, where there's a distinctly Peanuts vibe to the show. There's that same sense of overly precocious kids feeling their hopes and fears and frustrations just as intensely as adults. You know what I don't understand, Chuck? I don't understand love. Who does? Explain love to me, Chuck. You can't explain love. I could recommend a book or a painting or a song or a poem, but I can't explain love. Well, try, Chuck. Try to explain love. Well, say I happen to see this cute little girl walk by, and I... Why does she have to be cute, Chuck? Can't someone fall in love with a girl who isn't cute and has freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Chuck. Well, maybe you're right. Let's just say, then, that I happen to see this girl walk by who has a great big nose and... I didn't say a great big nose, Chuck. You not only can't explain love, actually you can't even talk about it. One piece of dialogue that I really love from this episode is when one of the villagers says, Look, can your fortune telling explain that? Can your science explain why it rains? Yes! Yes, it can! Yes! One of the ones I really enjoy is... So, I bet she told you you'd find your true love whenever you wear those red socks. Yep. So, how many times a day do you wear... How many times do you wear those? Every single day, she's told me. So, of course you're going to make it! It's a great way of showing that Sokka's constant... Is it scepticism or cynicism? It's scepticism. Sokka's constant scepticism versus their constant optimism creates this this complete seesawing of extremism in either end. That There's some things you've got to have a little bit of faith on, but if you open your mind too much, your Hmm. brain will fall out. Oh, and the other bit that's really great is when he goes to see the fortune teller and she puts the bone on the, the fire because that's the way she does her scrying and it explodes and she goes, oh my God, you've got this weight of the world on your shoulders. There's going to be incredible climactic battles and stuff. And that's the thing that would, they would obsess about in the crappy film. And Ang says, I already knew about all of that. I just want to know about a girl. It's this great way of just sort of sucking away the pretension from that kind of story. I also like the duck in this episode. <laughs> Yeah, the platypus bear. You mean? No, no, the just the duck that attacks oh, um, uh, Sokka when he <laughs> kicks that stone, and then a duck comes out of nowhere and starts pecking him relentlessly. <laughs> and, but then the duck appears again when Ang is just standing there. It just walks on screen. <laughs> Sokka says, "Oh, you're going to read my fortune," and she says. Your life will be filled with torment and frustration, most of it self-inflicted. <laughs> you didn't even read my palm or anything. I don't need to. It's all over your face. My life will be calm and happy and joyful. Ow! That doesn't prove anything. And yeah, I, it, I kind of feel for Sucker at that point. I'm like, yeah, you and me both, Sucker. We make things far worse for ourselves than we need to by caring so much. I just, we both have an inability to go, oh, you know what? Enough. 
Okay. The next one is Bartow of the Water Tribe, voiced by the great Victor Sullivan. Which, because I'm familiar with, uh, I you know I played Uncharted before uh, uh, watching this series, was a bit disconcerting at first mm. until I realised, oh wait, this is, this is a very different character, and he's also a really great way of um, getting a sense of the uh, Water Tribe traditions and stuff like that. Uh, for example. He takes soccer out on his boat. I forget what it's called. It's like a initiation ceremony yeah. uh, for water tribe warriors. Oh, the the iceberg slalom thing. Yeah, yeah. Which which is a nice like way of expanding uh, the audience's insight co- insight into the world, um, but also a great character moment for both Katara and Sokka. Richard McGonagall is the name of the actual actor, and he's only in it this one time and a couple more later on. There is an absence felt by Katara and Sokka's father in this first series. You know their mother is is dead, but you know that they desperately pine after and miss their father because he went away several years ago to help fight the war against the Fire Nation, and they haven't seen him since. So this is one of those ones where they're given a possibility that they might be able to find him. And this is one of the ones which is where Aang actually shows a bit of more weakness and more humanity uh, in there, in that he selfishly hides that information because he wants them to keep hanging out with him. And that, uh, that creates a rift between them. And I, I was kind of amazed that they went, you know what, we can't trust you anymore. You could go to the North Pole on your own. I was like, surely they'd be able to overcome this particular... You know, this, this act of selfishness and go, oh, you know, you are in my bad books right now, but we're going to stick with you nonetheless. Because Ang still has that trauma of separation. Yeah. Because he left because he was going to be separated from the one person he felt was a parent, and once again he felt like he was going to be separated from his family. Oh, and Mass Effect fans? This is the first appearance of Jennifer Hale in one of the two characters she plays in the show. She also plays Avatar Yoshi. And uh, June is, as I described to Lyra, as a total badass. Yeah. Hasn't got that much of an arc to her. Isn't that complex in uh, a female character? Uh, one of the parts I love about the end of the episode. Uncle, I didn't see you get hit by the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> but that's made even funnier by the fact that June's eyes no, snap can't. open and she's like, yet, yet paralyzed. It would be a slightly more insidious if she was still completely out cold. But the fact that she is then forced to lie on, on top of this, you know, pervy old man is, uh, yeah, it is heartwarming. But, uh, but yeah, her... her um, <laughs> Never will you hear that scenario described as heartwarming again. Just, you heard it here first, folks. She's giving Uncle Iroh a bit of comfort. Would anyone deny? I think it's not disturbing because we know Iroh isn't going to do anything. He's a gentleman. He's just having a bit of a sly cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, her her, her shiroshu in this is actually quite scary. It's it's it, this sort of rabid giant it's, anteater thing. Yeah, it, it looks like a uh, combination between an anteater and a star-nosed mole. Uh, mm. Google that if you don't know it's what a star-nosed hideous. mole is. Oh, yeah. they're horrible to look at. I mean, I'm sure they're very sweet creatures, but they just look wrong. Yeah, it's a Resident Evil boss. Can I say how much I just adore the animal combinations of this universe that they oh, make? Yeah. Just that every there are very few animals in this universe that are just one 
just creature. Animals. They're they're usually a combination of two or three. And Except the more, for that bear that's just yeah. a bear. And then there's that one Which bear that's bear? just a bear. But then there's the platypus bear that comes later. It's it's they, the more ludicrous they get, the more fun and entertaining they are. Like duck turtles and. <laughs> if you look at the the art book, which I know you have, Dan, there's rather too many weird pig things. Like there's oh. a pig chicken and a pig sheep and a pig there's, cow. What's that one farm where there's like a pig everything? Yeah. Which I figured was kind of its own little gag. There's a fake one that was um that we don't know if it's actually real. A flying hippo cow. Firelord Ozo is riding it in um one of Ang's visions in Nightmares and Daydreams. Oh, I yeah. love that show. <laughs> one episode. Even <laughs> Flopsy is a combination of a goat and a gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> it's got these weird, creepy <laughs> goat eyes. Yeah, sometimes it amplifies the cuteness, sometimes it amplifies the like, how big and horrifying the thing is. Yeah. Or sometimes it's, it's just really weird. One, and then there's the wolf bats, the buzzard wasps. Oh, gosh, those are terrifying. Yeah. Saber-tooth moose lion. <laughs> God, I love that bit where Sokka's on his own, making bargains with fate or whatever is out there that he will stop eating meat. We'll talk about and, that um, one. Sokka nicknames it something like Fufu Cuddly Puffs or something stupid. Ang, this is my friend, Fufu Cuddly Poops, Fufu Cuddly Poops, Ang. The next one is The Deserter, and there aren't many kids' cartoons aimed at 6 to 11-year-olds which directly reference Apocalypse Now, but this is one of them. The guy who um, helps them out, Che, is pretty much Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. He's like, uh, this guy's more than a man, man, and he's talking about this guy who, you know, is upriver and is basically Colonel Kurtz, but he just happens to be a, uh, a powerful firebender who has deserted this particular army. The one thing we're missing is Martin Sheen coming to have to assassinate him. And uh, this is the episode where Lyra actually jumped and ran behind the sofa because she didn't want to see Katara get burned. Yeah. It's, it's a really good upsetting image, and it's important for kids to see this, because there could otherwise be a definite fascination with fire brought about from all this firebending. And I think they were just like, right, <clears throat> rather than just doing that thing which they did in the 90s by having all the guns be laser guns and having no one ever say the word dead, let us directly tackle the fact that fire can really hurt people, and even firebenders are in danger of their own element. John, yeah. John, um, he talks about how... Um, the other elements can be powerful and deadly, but they can't be accidentally deadly. Like, yeah. Earth can be extremely powerful, but Earth does not move on its own. Whereas fire, uh, if something's set on fire, fire can go out of control and burn everything. Uh, it's the only element where you really have to be in control, otherwise it's in control of you. He does say, first you have to learn water, water and then earth before you do fire, because you need this control. Well, what if he's a waterbender for, uh, for an avatar? What about... I think it's very much you need the stability of earth before you go to fire. Yeah. Okay. What if you start <laughs> yeah. off as a, a firebending avatar? Then you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> then it's fine. Talk to Roku. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I see what he means. The whole point is you specifically, you kid, you are all 12 years old, need to get your head straight before you start playing with this Discipline. stuff. It's very, it's, very much the, discipline. it's very much the case of because he's so used to air where if air hits someone, the most they'll do is push them away. 
Yeah. Well, you so, only have to look at Zuko to see what happens <laughs> if you uh, play with yeah. fire. Yeah. This is one where we find out that this um, Zhao was actually Zhang Zhang's student, yeah. and mm. Ang turns it by um, using that lack of discipline against him. He ends up destroying his, his own, own fleet. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And the pirates get a call back in this one as well. Yeah. Oh, I do love the bit in the one with the water scroll of, can you not see that while you're arguing, your own ship has sailed? There's no time for proverbs. <laughs> I mean, literally. Maybe, Maybe I should, should be a proverb. proverb. Next one is the waterbending master. This is where we meet Paku. And did you notice in the film that there's none of that whole we won't teach women to yeah. uh, to offensively waterbend? They are healers and that's it. Get your ass in the kitchen. Katara, again, a fantastic conflict to get down. Just the when she's like, I'll be outside if you're man enough to fight me. And it's like everyone watching the show at that point went, went collectively... Whoa! <laughs> Ooh, I watched that one today. Because this guy is the possibly the the most advanced waterbender in in the entire of the four nations, and she just called him, well, not a man. And and she says like um, uh, Sokka and Ang are saying to her, uh, "There's no way you can win." And she's like, "I don't care. Yeah. I just <laughs> want to make a point." Yeah. But that means that because he, I think he spars with Ang, doesn't it? Because they've they've actually taken away a lot of his grouchiness and, and, yeah. Um, yeah. and abrasive. He's just genial, like most of the characters. That's in that right. Film. But he he spars with Ang instead of having the duel with Katara, which means that that whole scene where he it's, Ang creates a lot more power behind the water bending than anyone was expecting, and it's like, oh wow, he's the most powerful water bender. That was Katara. <laughs> <laughs> And they still got that, but yeah, yeah. And also, am I right in thinking that um, that the film then left out all the healing bit? Yep. Yeah. There's no healing. Yeah, because I I loved that when they when they went into the idea of using the the water bending for healing, which they went into in much more depth in the the next two series. Oh, it's very well placed actually in the deserter where just after she's been burned, she yes. heals herself. That's when she, she yeah, that's herself. when she finds out she can do it. Um, oh, and thank you for not healing me when I got two <laughs> fish hooks stuck in my f- thumb. What? Two fish hooks? He tried to get the first one out with the second. <laughs> I just want to note at this point, people, um, all these quotes from this show. How quotable was the movie? It's, uh, There's not nothing in there at all. Yeah. I knew when I saw you that you were a bender. That's all I can remember. Terrible folks. Uh, I can't remember exactly I, the one that UA says about the spirit part. Your friend on Twitter quoted it earlier, Combine. Uh, yeah. Gosh. Oh, that. the spiritual place. This entire <laughs> place is built around the spiritual place. Brilliant. So spiritual more. Is there a spiritual place where I can meditate? There is a very spiritual place. The city was built around this place. Genius! Uh, we're making a lot of little in-jokes to little one-liners the characters say, but let's just emphasize, this show is actually genuinely funny. It's mm. not just like, not just like kids' show funny, it is genuinely funny. Laugh out loud. Yeah, it's funny, like, I mean, you would quote Firefly in the same way. It's yes. like, you know, an adult thing, you know, I think we should call it your grave! Oh, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal! It is a very funny show. To cut that out, it's a, like, cutting that out loses... To consider that that is okay to lose. Yeah. That that, I mean, just, well, let's get rid of the slapstick and 
everything else. Yeah. But I, I really do love... This is one of my favorite episodes of this season, just for getting to see Katara really get to, like, just a new side to Katara we haven't seen before, and getting to see her become powerful and more of the kind of character she's going to become in a way. I, I really love getting to see her kind of, like, come to the forefront and just show her real strength in, the, in this episode. I was going to say, I think it, it speaks very much of the fact that her strength is, is to do with her determination and, and her commitment to the idea of getting Aang to where he needs to be. Because when she's put in that position where he says he won't train her, she just she backs off and says, OK, if, if you know Aang can't risk his training for my sake, I'll just go. Um I was, was I the only one who thought, just learn how to waterbend completely, go on your merry way, then teach her. You know, he can't make you unlearn it. He doesn't, he no longer has the power to go, well, I ain't teaching you, I don't care about the world. Which is the most immature way of looking at it, for goodness sake. This is way bigger than your pride, Paku. And this, fight, and this fight scene is probably the best one-on-one but like bending duel that occurs in series in all, one in, in all of series one it's really yeah. awesome. it's awesome it's a yeah. it is a, sh- a glimpse of the sort of thing you're going to start seeing regularly in the future yeah i mean yes because you've seen fire nation people dueling each other and it's well, one of those agni key from the film oh. yeah uh, uh, I mean, just, did, was it just a case of like how's that pronounced agni key or agni kai let's go with key so they'll you know no one will care <laughs> that's lit- maybe they just thought no one will care or it doesn't matter that's the only reason that they would have decided to just pronounce it key carry on sorry it's very much when two waterbenders fight each other it's very much you send out one attack and that person subverts that attack and changes it into something else well yeah because um, firebending is very direct it's like attack 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 Whereas um, uh, water is very adaptable and can yeah. change to different situations. And you're seeing Katara apply these abilities in very different ways. Like, for, for example, when she gets flinged into a fountain, she start, makes a pillar of ice and starts flinging discs of ice at Paku. And Paku's like, oh, whoa, wait a sec. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, and also, um, when Sokka starts trying to be charming with uh, Yue, he actually, you, you start to root for him, and there's whole, we could, you know, do an activity. <laughs> and for all the time she's on screen, you start to sort of, you know, you, you like Yue, and, and so the point is that her sacrifice at the end actually has some meaning. They could have done, gone on for longer, but um, there is a sense of... Connection? Yeah, there. And, uh... Okay, again, that's all completely lost because there's no arranged marriage in the. Um, she's just some girl in, in the film. Just even the skips past and just meeting. Yeah, and then Sokka met this girl called Princess Yui, who yeah, he quite they became liked. friends straight away. Yeah, let's not show any of that, shall we? My brother and the princess became friends right away. Um, too too much expensive. One thing I thought was really quite interesting about the way um, soccer and U.S. relationship goes is that it, it kind of blindsides you with regards to Suki because you, 
you think there's something going there, and then Yue comes on the scene, it's like, oh, okay, I guess Suki was just going to be some girl then that he met. Mm. Um, and, of course, she comes back in a much more... Pronounced way. Pronounced way later on. Although, speaking of which, the, whole, the Yue thing doesn't leave Sokka. No. And that does actually come back to literally yeah. haunt him. He's um, just like a little bit of him has been left behind at this stage, and it's. I don't know, they, they never really go into it, but you, you feel like that this thing's going to keep him up nights. Literally. So after that, then there's the uh, two parts, Siege of the North, parts one and two, which we can talk about as one collective episode. For a start, Aang gets to go into the... Well, when the firebenders attack, Aang gets to go into the spirit world, and we get that weird, rude monkey who's kind of Rafiki. Just go away. I'm I'm meditating, please. The meeting with Ko, the face sealer, is one of the best monster moments. Oh, I love it. So creepy. In Avatar in general. (laughs) Yeah, exceptionally good delivery from the voice actor for Ko. And it's very much a, it's it's very much how we said it's like a Miyazaki film where you've got mm. this this om omnius spirit who, if he shows any sign of weakness, mm. there's a specific rule that if he breaks, he's gone. Mm. That is like something. Just one, um, I was just going to say, is very much shades of spirited away in that. Mm. There's one um, line that really creeped me out that Co comes out. It's something like, I haven't had a face of a child for a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I think Co the face dealer is an example of something I was talking about when we were talking about Batman, the animated series with Mask of the Phantasm, mm-hmm. where that the limitations you have for a kid's show in, in like, you can't show gore or anything yeah. like that, sometimes yeah. allows you to create something scarier. Just the concept, because they couldn't have a monster that just straight up kills people, mm. because it's a kid's show, essentially. But having this creature that steals your face, just and rips your it. face off, is so unsettling and creepy. Um, yeah. And the notion that it's got this fairy tale uh, and sort of like folklore thing of... and he won't do it unless you react in this certain way. Which I've, I've read similar stories from back when people would just sort of tell stories by the firesides and wouldn't even write it down. And I, I love that kind of thing. That's, very, that's Hellboy to me. I mean, yes. you're very scared for Ang when he goes in because the rule is not to show any emotion and Ang, you've known him as this very expressive child. Yeah. yeah, I never thought of that, but you're right. He never so has a blank is, face. No. There is a bit where he nearly breaks as well, and Ko gets yeah. right in his face, like, ah! But, um, yeah, no, yeah he, he breaks into a smile, and then Ko sort of turns around and, and immediately looks at him, like, oh, shit, be that. Also, Ko is doing everything in his power to try and trigger a reaction yeah. from Aang, like, suddenly coming in and shouting, it's like, right, come on, you're scared, come on, and be, be scared. The old monkey in closet yeah. trick as well. 
Yeah. I love the design of him, though. The, ma- the way they've made him a centipede mm. with an eye, but the face is the pupil that mm. keeps changing. Just everything about it is just really freaky. The bit where um, he mentions an avatar trying, a past avatar trying to kill him because he tormented him with the face of a loved one. Yeah. And then he uses it. Yeah. As if this is see. only a small part of the show, but we've, it's fascinating how much we're getting out of this. I mean, he's trying to coax a reaction out of a past self that he knows Ang might be c- in connection with. Mm. Why hold a grudge against a past life? Yeah. Mm. There is a nice callback to this character in a later episode. I won't tell you when, but, uh, but you folks may remember it. And I have a theory that he's going to show up in uh, Korra yeah. season Did you two. Go- you got to remember, he's the oldest spirit that they know at this point. Yeah. Ooh. That will be... That'll be a moment that everyone goes, Oh! While watching. Yeah. I can't wait for that. What if he turns up with the face of somebody you know? Oh, oh man. Oh, not nice. <laughs> and then just sort of pulls it out from behind his back and goes, Oh, check it. I got Toff's face. <gasps> I know, I'm sure I have read a, a a fairy tale or a myth or something of about. A face uh, well, no, 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 not not specifically a face stealer, but something that that drinks your emotions. Like you express a certain emotion near it, and it steals that emotion from you, and yeah. then you will never feel that emotion again. Mm. This is where it's very much. Um, because I watch a lot of animes about Japanese folklore, and there, it, there's this is where they're getting their roots from. Spirits are a force of nature, not an antagonist. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Right, Sharon asked something interesting, which is, you know, um, Admiral Zhao kills the koi cart that represents the moon. Oh, yeah. yeah. What would have happened had he killed the one that represents the ocean? That is a good question. Um, <laughs> what happens if you put the ocean in a bag? Would the ocean go red? What happens if you then set the ocean on fire? Well, uh, hmm. I my theory was that the ocean would freeze instantly, and yeah. it would be impenetrable ice that even uh, waterbenders couldn't get through, because the balance and the harmony would have been broken. Well, that's I think, you know, the way Ang channel, channels the ocean spirit, mm. it would be more of Ang channeling, channeling the spirit world because the moon spirit came down to the earth to be with the ocean, so it might be a case of he opens a gate to the spirit world or something like that instead. Or, dude, a gate to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is a really great double... This is the one where, if you remember, I tweeted, okay, just finished Avatar Season 1, Book 1. Wow. Yeah. To which you guys responded, dude, if you like this... <laughs> That's and, nothing. But I think it's valid. This is a yeah, really, is. really good, strong season finale. It has a cinematic feel to it, to the point where all they had to do is really just put most of it on screen for the film, and it ended in a way that could have been a lot worse, maybe? I don't know. Basically, Nickelodeon actually aired this as as one whole yeah. thing. They didn't split it up into two episodes. Yeah. Correct. As they should. It's got a sense of loss, and it's got a sense of... It's got a sense of jeopardy, and you believe that the water tribe are in real danger. 
And the glimpse you get to see it, what happens when you mess with the balance, like mm. truly on a spiritual level, mess with the balance. I mean, you got to imagine, it's not just there that the sky is red. Yeah, it's got to be everywhere. And I, I love how the... Um they go to when it goes to black and white, and the only colours you get are from the fire and then Yue's eyes. That's yeah. wonderful animation. That's a great touch. And I've never seen that done in a. Uh, calling this a kids show is a terrible misrepresentation of both kids and this. The only thing that bothered me about this episode, I can't really say bothered me, the uh, the bit towards the end with Zhao, the hand coming out of the water, taking him and killing him. Now, do you suppose that's Hang killing him, or the ocean spirit Lar that Hang oh. joined with killed him. I, it, it, I think I think Hang killed somebody. It's a death squad of unseen. I think it's the ocean spirit, to be honest. Yeah, because, because the ocean you killed spirit his sister. Uh, drops Hang off, doesn't he? Mm. The ocean spirit no. drops Hang off and says, "Okay, the moon's back. I'm going to return back to that pool." But before I return back, <laughs> to that pool, <laughs> I'm taking um, you down. Yeah. And it was like Ang would never have killed no. Zhao, but no. this is an ocean spirit. And it's also a great moment for Zuko. It shows that even if Zuko hates this person, he's still he's still part of the Fire Nation. I should save this person. Also, Ang was in the Avatar state, and it is debatable as to whether he's even Ang at that stage. Well, he's not, because that's that's the thing with the in the. We'll talk about this in the next series but the avatar state is more of a defense mechanism it's you open yourself up to the universe and you sort of lose yourself in that well i took it as um in this particular uh example where he's turning into koi uh, fish zilla um, just koi zilla i believe that's what um they call it koi zilla is that he's being he's actually possessed by yes. the ocean spirit because if um, you notice, it is the ocean spirit looks at Ang, both of them light up, and that's when it happens. Anything else on season one? Well, the only other thing I wanted to mention just this bit: how funny the show is, and things like that. But mm. how it has like real-world ethics that you can... T- you can. I'll put my daughter in front of this show and it teaches her things like, obviously, you said earlier about the fire burning Katara. It mm. teaches every... There's little bits that happen in real life that could teach them to share, things like that, you know, not to get angry. Yeah. Just it, it, it really does teach. It's brilliant. Not to make disparaging statements about women having to do the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, but, but back in when we were kids, that was done in such a more clumsy um, way. Like at the end of Bloody He Man, he'd turn up and go, Orko showed us an important lesson today about not crossing uh, the road too G. fast. Yeah. And it was like, oh, come on. There's no more elegant way you can weave that into the show. You've actually got to tell us. And I thought that as a five year old child. That's what I love about this. It's. You can see the child thinking, oh, if that's how Aang treats people, that's how I should treat people. There's a reason why people used to tell stories to get across moral decisions. Yeah, morals. That's the word I've been looking for. Sorry. Mm. 
I would have accepted just once if Soccer had finished the show and, and just sort of turned around. Like, it, it faded out and then faded back in again, and Soccer's standing there, and he says, you know, on today's show, we learned an important lesson. And then Ang <laughs> comes in and, and messes with him, thus taking away his dignity. And, uh, yeah, then I would have accepted that just once. They could still do it with Bolin. Wheel of morality, turn, turn, turn. <laughs> And this is why you always listen to your father. <laughs> uh, the, one, I should have brought this up earlier on, but I really want to make sure I mention it now. This show looks extraordinarily good for TV animation, and I yeah, especially by the late seven series. years old and, as well now. Yeah, and, and uh, that's one of the first like things I noticed about it. Getting the further I went into it, that this. I mean, TV animation usually is fairly, has to be really efficient and budget and cheap. So yeah. that's, I mean, that's why you'll see, or you look like a, like at a Disney film, like the way the characters are animated, there's a new drawing for just about every, it's like for every second frame. There's just yeah. very smooth and flowing and lot, just tons of work. Whereas TV, you'll get something like, they'll do something like the, uh, the Simpsons, where it's very, they'll hit a pose and stick there, move to another pose and stick there for a while. It's just, it's very efficient in the way they work. Yeah. So, but, so I was really amazed looking at this show, how good it looks. Even from the beginning, it looks pretty good. And at the point it's at, it is now looking at the Korra series, it is pushing feature levels of quality from a episodic TV show, which is insane. It's probably the best looking TV animation I've ever seen coming out of the States. Seriously, I, I mean, Korra looks better than most films. It's, Korra looks oh, like mind blowing. I, I, did some research, but not, not a ton of research, but I did some. And I mean, just the fact that it's like with the elemental bending stuff, I mean, fire and water and all those effects are really hard to do. Mm. Those are some of the hardest things to do in animation. And they have a show re- built entirely around that. And they do it very, very well in lots of, in lots of creative ways. I've, I did try to do some research to figure out why this show looks as good as it does compared to other ones. The main thing I found is that it has twice the budget of other animated shows. Mm-hmm. So, like, so like, uh, I think like a like a Futurama or a SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> or some show or something will cost about roughly five hundred thousand per episode. Maybe this costs a million easy per episode. Even the old Ang series. Whoa. Uh, Seriously, a million yeah. per episode. That's a million what, per episode. That's how much? Their money how are they making their money back? Just advertising and DVD sales? I guess. I have no idea. And I, fingers I'm crossed, God. Blu-ray sales. A dedicated I, I, fan was a dedicated fan for the series. Applause to Nickelodeon for because I mean, we were kind of joking about the way they just throw stuff at the wall to see what sticks and to just try anything. But that they actually committed that love, that amount of money to this show mm. is amazing. The other big reason it looks so good is that uh, the creators did something very unusual with outsourced animation. Usually, animation that gets sent to uh, Korea or Japan or wherever it gets sent to uh, get done with, like, The Simpsons or in most any other uh, animated show. They have to... The animators there are given the basic blocking. They're given all the basic poses the character has to hit, and they basically mm. have to do the grunt work of the in-betweening, just to getting uh-huh. getting in them from pose to pose, and they have to follow it very rigidly, and for, with good reason, for, like, especially for a comedy show, like, the timing and the movement and everything is really important that they don't, like, break from that. But with this show, the guys decided... 
let's give them some creative freedom to actually push it and improve upon it, which is some fairly unheard of for outsourced TV animation. And so basically they are handing something that is already probably pretty good and well blocked out to these, uh, to, to these animators out in South Korea. And then those animators are taking it to the next level. They are yeah, really, yeah. Letting them which, do what they do best. Absolutely. Which I, I can say this as an animator. If you give an animator some, a little bit of creative freedom with something, they can often make it Amazing. twice, like make it twice as good. They can well, that, bring a whole new idea or subtext to something that you never thought of before. That kind of makes a lot of sense because animators probably got into that business because they're creative people and they, you know, they want to be able to to put something of themselves into their work. If you give them ownership of that work, then that's going to bring out more in them than just saying his stencil copy. Absolutely. No, it it makes them want to push it further and make more of it. And I think, I mean, that absolutely shows up. The st- I mean, the style, too, like, they, it basically combines anime's efficiency with, like, kind of lots of held poses, lots of uh, frames that get held a lot longer, so they can put a little bit more um, design and detail into the characters with a much more Disney style of pose design and sensibility and character. And just the fact that it's animated to English dialogue, I think kind of it's an anime style and it pulls a lot of anime strengths, but it still has a very uh, Western sensibility to the, to the animation itself. It just pretty much brings out the best of both. Anybody who's an animation nut should really get into the series. And if for some reason you can't get into the show and don't want to watch it, just go and find some clips from The Legend of Korra because that show is just jaw-dropping. I can't, I can't imagine many people being animation nuts who are fascinated by animation and how the process works who wouldn't like this. Probably not, but still. like That's I a just, very rarefied sector. I just want to stress how good these shows look. It is yeah. really impressive. I said the jump up from uh, uh, Ang book three to Korra book one is insane. I was, I was amazed that I was actually... Because I, I was able to stave off Korra until the day after I'd finished watching uh, Ang. Uh, so yeah. I knew nothing about it. I knew I'd glimpsed the heroine. That was it. Same for me. And I hadn't even worked out that the heroine was definitely female. And so when I watched it, my jaw hit the floor. Seriously? This is what they're doing with it? And I got a little teary because I was like, I can't believe this has come back and so well. So yeah, book three fire was a tough act to follow. And uh, yep, they're doing it. Oh, a couple of last things before we go, just about voice work. Um, Dante Basco, who plays Zuko in, in this, I didn't realize until I'd, I was like halfway through season two, is Rufio from Hook. What? <laughs> you didn't know? Knew- no. Whoa. No one told you? Nobody okay. told me that. That's amazing. Rufio. <laughs> I'm going to show Lyra Hook and see if she guesses who his voice is. She's, she is getting very good at voices. She said what we were watching Young Justice the other day. I hate people when people talk about their kids. Oh, my kids are doing some neat stuff. But this kid's not quite four. And she saw Dr. Ivo doing his thing. And she went, hmm. Sorry, Professor Ivo. He sounds like Dr. Octopus. And I went, I'm just going to go check that. But if you're right, you get a biscuit. And she was talking about the spectacular Spider-Man Dr. Octopus. She was right. Oh. Which, I can't remember his name, but... It's Peter McNichol. And I haven't even got that one. I'd, I'd guess that it was um, 
Joshua Keaton, uh, who plays Spectacular Spider-Man, playing Black Spider, and because of the uh, Greg Wiesman link, but <sighs> she's got my ear, and that makes me very proud of her. And uh, Mae Whitman, who plays uh, Katara. I don't know if you, Josh, have you listened to the Making of Batman Breakdown yet? Uh, not yet. Have you listened to Batman Breakdown yet? Yes, of course. Did you figure out that Dr. Whitman is named for Mae Whitman? Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. Just out of uh, reverence to, uh, to her wonderful performance as Katara, uh, I named uh, the character of uh, Jennifer Whitman in Batman Breakdown after her. She's Anne Veal in Arrested Development, George Michael's girlfriend. She's also a love interest number four or five in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. She is. Yes. And, and she's, she's Maggie in One Fine Day. One Fine Day, the George Clooney film with oh, really? her. Yeah. She was very I, small in that. I tweeted about this. It's the film where Batman and Catwoman have to babysit Katara and Tarzan. Because <laughs> the little kid, I can't remember his name. Alex D. Linz. Is young Tarzan. But uh, yeah, Mae Whitman, an absolutely fantastic job. And frankly, should have played Katara in the film. Because, you know... When I was in the supermarket, around about the time the original Airbender film came out, um, this kid pulled his dad to one side and said, Dad, what's that? And he pointed at a uh, movie version of Appa. And his dad stared at it for a while. And the kid was clearly you know, asking, what's that, in a kind of can-I-have-it way. And his dad said very dryly in a way that I'm going to use with Lyra, it's £15 worth of I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Appa, Dee Bradley Baker doing voices for both Appa and Momo. Indeed. And and a character in the show that I just sent you a couple of weeks ago, or a week or so ago, Alex. Uh, he also plays Tarlock in uh, Legend of Korra. Oh, Ryan. Yeah, Dee Bradley Baker's one of the best voice actors in the business, and one of those voice actors who can also do an alarming number of creature and monster sounds. So he's, he's pretty awesome. So when Frank Welker goes, Dee Bradley's just going to horn in. Pretty much. So that's it. That was book one from The Legend of Ang Water. We will be back next week with book two, Earth. I would like to thank my guests once again very much for coming on and being so fantastic. Daniel Floyd, do you want to pimp your show? Uh, yeah, you can uh, find me on a show called Extra Credits on PATV every Wednesday. That's not pimping, Dan. That's the location. Dan would never say this, but he has the greatest series of animated lectures on the video game industry that can be found on this internet. I challenge any of you to find one more intelligent, professional, pacey, and hilarious. Dan works with game developer James Portnow to produce short investigations into a variety of topics, usually with the focus being on championing innovation and decrying laziness, mediocrity, or exploitation. If you're into games and you've never had the pleasure, jump on over to Penny Arcade TV and start watching. It will become one of your essential weekly fixes. Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Uh, Kane and Rinse is a website slash podcast where we take a game and dissect it and explore it to its fullest. Um, and you can also find interesting articles and videos on our website. I also do a video series on Gonzo Planet called The Animation Archives. I'm two episodes in with the third episode currently in production. And thank you very much, Sharon Shaw, Jerome McIntosh, and Dwayne Griffiths of Gonzo Planet. We'll see you next week. Avatar State. Yip, yip. <laughs> <laughs>